so much, if you would, while the children are being dismissed for Children's Church, if you'll turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, all right. Worthy. That's oh, a great song. I appreciate that. What a. It's funny. We don't. We didn't discuss the, the uh, what song would be before this message. But what a perfect song for the message we're about to hear this morning from God's Word, out of Luke chapter seven. He certainly is worthy. Let's talk about debt. Debt is a topic close to many of our hearts. Uh, one person put it this way: I have the best debts. In the world, every single one of them is outstanding. Uh, maybe you can identify with that. The average American's individual debt, average individual American's debt is $96,371. Average household credit card debt alone is for, uh, $14,271, just credit card debt. Uh, total in America right now is hitting $787 billion in credit card debt. The average interest on a credit card is 17.13%. That's about $134 billion that the credit card companies will make this year on interest alone. This year, United States household debt has written, risen to $16.5 trillion. We're in a pandemic of debt in this country, you could say. But most of our debt is caused by living above our means, getting things that we can't really afford or shouldn't really afford. I heard about one man who called the police and reported that his wallet had been stolen along with all his credit cards. About uh, three, they took the report and about three days later he called back and says, you know what, you don't need to look too hard because the thief is actually charging a whole lot less than my family ever did. Uh, None of us like debt. We've been looking at a series of Supper with Jesus and looking at different times Jesus had a meal with somebody and the impact of that meal (coughs) upon the people he ate with. And tonight I want to look at a meal in the Bible, a supper where Jesus was at as we look at the story of two debtors, two people with a debt they could not pay. Let's look at Luke chapter 7 all the way down in verse number 36. And one of the Pharisees desired that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and had wiped them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them (coughs) with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed five hundred pence, the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, and thou gavest me no water for my feet. 
She had washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time that I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. Father, I ask you today to speak to us in a special way through this parable. I know that we've even looked at this parable before from this pulpit, but as we look at uh, some new angles and just some new thoughts we pull from it today, Lord, will you use it to challenge us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This supper is unique because of the players in attendance. They could not be more different. You had a Pharisee and a prostitute. Now, 76 times your Bible talks about the harlot or the prostitute. Obviously, it is soundly condemned in Scripture. But Jesus said something interesting one time. He said that prostitutes were, the one, were one of the ones that were listening to John the Baptist and who repented and changed their lives. In fact, he shocked the crowd one day while he is preaching and says to the Pharisees in front of witnesses, prostitutes and publicans will get into heaven before you will. That was a shocking thing to say. Did you know that in the lineage of Christ were two prostitutes? You had Tamar who played the harlot with Judah and you had Rahab out of Jericho. And uh, so we see that, that uh, there's a place for forgiveness in the Bible. If you look today or, or do any research today concerning prostitution, it will break your heart. The average age that, they, that ladies enter into prostitution today is between age 12 and 14. That's the average age, which means many start much younger. Uh, there are sinister forces today that prey on young girls and runaways and those that even in kidnapping and the, and the sex trade is a terrible thing. All that to say, before we drop the hammer of judgment on this woman, let's have the compassion that Jesus had for her when he saw her because of what he would do in her life. So this is who we have at the dinner. We have the sage and the streetwalker. We have the Pharisee and the floozy. We have the patriarch and the paramour. And in the middle of all of it, you have the preacher, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the parable begins by Jesus making the statement to Simon, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Uh, if, if you're the Pharisee, a, a Pharisee or the Pharisee type, when Jesus says, I've got something to tell you, the best thing you can do is run like your tail's on fire, because he's about to drop a theological bomb on you and uh, usually makes them look the fool. But keep in mind, the Pharisees were the rich, the religious leaders, they were the respected, yet Jesus was more critical of them than he was anyone else. As a result, generally the Pharisees would have nothing to do with him. Uh, other than trying to pick at him, trick him, uh, they trying to make him look bad. And so it is something special that this Simon wanted, at some level, he was interested in Jesus and invited him over for a meal. Now, I've read this passage frontward and backward, and I don't know for sure why Simon did invite him. Was there an openness there like there was with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? After all, Nicodemus also was a Pharisee. 
Or was there some curiosity or some general spiritual interest? Uh, or was it like most other meetings with the Pharisees, a hoped opportunity to expose Jesus as a fraud? I don't really know, maybe a part of all of the above, but I think his attitude reflects the latter. I think he was there to try to trap Jesus in some way. At any rate, he invites Jesus to his home and Jesus comes. I love this. Anywhere in Jesus' ministry, every time somebody invites him, he comes. He will come where he is invited. It matters not the destination. It doesn't matter the situation. Two weeks ago, we talked about a dinner party that Matthew set up and all kinds of wicked people showed up here and invited Jesus and he came. It doesn't matter the condition of your heart, your past failures. If you invite him in, he'll be there. Isn't that exciting? And we, as we have learned, uh, the, as we get a picture of this dinner here, a visual in our minds, we know in New Testament times, uh, we've talked about, they didn't sit in chairs by tables like we do. Rather, they had like a couch that they inclined on, uh, reclined on. Their feet would be sticking out. They would lean on their left elbow uh, because if they're normal, because normal people are right-handed, amen? So if they're normal, they would lean on their left elbow and, and uh, then eat with their right hand. But to quote uh, the great Katie Yoder, if the right side of the brain controls the left side of the body, then only left-handed people are in their right minds. Uh, she's a lefty. What does she know, amen? Uh, so their feet would not be under the table. They would really be sticking back backwards there, and we've also talked about the fact that these dinners were really public events when the lack of television and entertainment and all that. When you had important people having a dinner party, there was a courtyard and people could observe and people did uh, come to these and they would watch from a distance. They weren't really invited guests, but they weren't asked to leave either and they could observe what's going on here. We see that several times. In fact, here you see it where it talks about the people. The people that were watching, look at look down in verse number uh, 49, and they that sat at meat with him begin to say to themselves, who is he that forgiveth sins also? So those were that sat at meat with him, then there were others also that were watching. And while Jesus is sitting there and, and they're having their meal, <coughs> at some point a woman comes up behind Jesus. She is weeping uncontrollably. We've seen that before. Probably not often, but sometimes you'll see when somebody is so overwhelmed, it's not just tears trickling, it's not a little sniffling. She is all out ugly crying. She is weeping. And uh, probably she falls to her knees at the couch, and if she comes up to Jesus, she would be here, and he's there stretched out, so she's at his feet. And as she is weeping and crying uncontrollably, some of the tears begin to drip on his feet, what Martin Luther called heart water. Her heart is breaking, and she's crying. And then she sees the tears drop on his feet. No, no, so she quickly tries to, she lets down her hair. And we talked last week about what it meant for a woman to let down her hair. And she starts to dry his feet with her hair. And then to try to make it even better, uh, she puts ointment on them, some of her perfume that's with her. Her heart is broken. She's obviously completely at the end of herself. She's just left a shell of a person. She was a sinner. She was a woman of the night. She was a prostitute. Simon is watching this, as other people are as well. And he thinks to himself, this Jesus says he's from God. <laughs> if he really would be from God, 
He would know what kind of woman this is, and he wouldn't let her close to him, much less touch him and do what she's doing here. You have to realize what a shocking scene this was. Now, forget the fact that there was some major cultural differences. We understand that. But, uh, you know, today it wouldn't be a big deal for a woman to let her hair down. Many of you are doing it right here in today. But that time it would be. In fact, the Talmud tells us that if a woman let her hair down, it would be a condition for divorce. It was that uh, scandalous of a thing. So we see that we, we understand the difference in cultural, but even today, this would be a pretty shocking scene. Imagine if you're at a restaurant with a group of friends and all of a sudden a woman walks in and you know by the way she's dressed, by the way she's handling herself, by the way she's painted up, that you know what kind of woman she is and she comes over to your table, this table of strangers, and starts weeping, gets down on her feet and starts to cry and rub on one of your feet. Be kind of an odd scene, wouldn't it? This was an awkward situation here that they were going through. I imagine the stares, the shock, people just watching transfixed. Uh, some maybe calling for security. Who knows what to do here? It would be an extraordinary thing now, and it was an extraordinary thing then too. The cool thing in this story I wanted you to see, this is, I, I, I got such a chuckle out of this. Simon says he's disparaging of Jesus. He's not a prophet, because a prophet would know things. And then Jesus answers his thought, proving that a prophet knows things. Amen? I think that is a great part of that story. Uh, because Simon didn't say it, he said it to himself. And Jesus answers his thought. That's what Jesus does. He sees what you think, he sees what you say, he sees what you think but don't say. Amen? He sees all. So, he says, I have a story to tell you. And in the story, Jesus talks about two debtors. Both of them owed a lender money. For one, the debt was 500 denarii. Now, I did some research on this, and that is roughly, give or take a little, that is roughly, we could say, a year's salary. Uh, one of them owed 50 denarii. That is closer to what would be a month's salary. So let's just call it a year's salary and a month's salary. That's what these two people owed. You can, you can do the math and uh, apply that to your situation, how much you make a year, how much you make a month. That was the two debts that were owed. And the point of the, 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 the fact here is that they both owed the lender and neither one of them could pay the debt. And the lender, whose name was Bernie Sanders, said, I forgive you the debt. You're forgiven of your loan. I'm getting my stories mixed up maybe just a little bit. But the lender forgives both. And hallelujah, what a day that would be to have your debt forgiven. Most of us know the joy of the last payment. When you got that, back in the day, they used to have payment coupon books. Remember that? You would tear out a coupon and put your check with it. Uh, for you younger people, a check is a piece of paper we used to write on, and we'd write an amount of money. I know that that is total foreign to you, but uh, then you'd send the check in the mail uh, with the coupon. But when you tore out that last page out of the coupon book, ah, oh, the debt's paid. That's a great feeling. Well, this is even better. Imagine the money that you owe on your house, and, and uh, you, it, it's maybe years that to, to pay on that. That's my condition anyway. Imagine getting a letter from the bank and said, your loan is forgiven. It's all yours. It's paid for. Hallelujah. What a day that would be. So Jesus pauses here and asks a question. Which one of them will love him most? That's an interesting question. Which one's going to be fuller of joy and adoration for the lender? 
Which one's most, more likely to send a thank you card? Which one's more likely to name their firstborn after him? Which one is going to be more grateful? And uh, Simon thinks about it for a moment. He says, I suppose he, that he to whom he forgave most. Now, Jesus' teaching here is very important for us even today because here you have two people. You have the woman and Simon who both want to see Jesus for whatever reason. They're both in the presence of Jesus. They both listen to what he has to say. One of them has an eruption of joy and love and her life is transformed. The other one is cool and detached. One of them is sent away confused and annoyed. The other one is sent away totally changed. Why the difference? What's the difference? The reason this is so important is because everyone in this room is in the same place. You're in the presence of Jesus. Now, I hope, you, I, I, I don't think for a second that you, you come here to church ultimately just to listen to me stand up and pontificate. Hopefully that's not the only reason you come because I don't have anything personally to offer you other than what the Word of God says. Uh, hopefully we're here for more than that, but you see Jesus Christ is present right here, right now. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So he's able to do for you just what he did for that woman that day. See, when you come into his presence, you're going to either respond like Simon or like this woman. You can go away like Simon and detached, unaffected, even maybe a little angry or upset, or you can leave like this woman totally transformed. So which one are you closest to, Simon or like the woman? How do you explain the difference? You have two people here uh, in front of the same person. They're listening to the same thing. They're hearing the same message. One is praised by Jesus. One is condemned by Jesus. One is changed. The other is unchanged. What makes the difference? I want to show you today. There's a difference. The difference really is two spiritual conditions. I want to look at the <coughs> symptoms of the two spiritual conditions and then the cause as we get into this. We, we find in our text first the symptoms here between Christianity and plain religion. Simon comes to Jesus in an intellectual, detached kind of way. Uh, he wants to pick his brain. He wants to have a discussion with him. The woman comes with her whole being, everything that she is. Can you imagine, just for a minute, put yourself in Simon's mindset and... How would he have felt when Jesus says, Simon, I entered into your house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. Thou gavest me no kiss. My head with oil thou didst not anoint. I imagine Simon saying, you're kidding, right? What do you want of me? I invited you into my home. We're having a nice conversation. You don't really expect me to embrace you and fall down at your feet and receive you with this kind of spectacle. But that's exactly what the woman did. I see the first difference between Simon and the woman is that Simon comes in a detached way, in an intellectual way. He doesn't have his whole self there. He's letting Jesus into his house, but he's not letting Jesus into his heart. He'd like to have a discussion. He wants Jesus to answer a few questions. He's checking Jesus out intellectually, but this woman has been moved to the depth of her soul. What she by the way, she did hear what Jesus had to say as well, intellectually. That's the mind. There were tears. That's the heart. There was action. That's the body. What I'm saying today is she was wholeheartedly given to Christ, mind, soul, and body. She gave everything of herself. 
The woman did, uh, the, uh, sorry, Simon comes in with the head. She comes in with their whole being. He will address Jesus only with his intellect. He, she lets Jesus address her mind, heart, and soul. In a sense, again, they're where we are. In a sense, they're both in church. They're both listening to Jesus. They're both sitting there. And Simon is approaching Jesus the way many people do today. He is interviewing Jesus. Uh, it's like Simon saying, and, and just think about with me today, because so many people have this attitude today. It's like Simon saying, Jesus, I've been watching you. You do miracles, and it's really impressive. And <clears throat> I've heard your teaching. It's pretty remarkable. And I'm trying to determine if having you in my life would be advantageous to me. So please fill out these forms in triplicate, please. That's the, that's the way he was approaching Jesus, like it was an interview. Like he's going to try him out. He's in control. Jesus is the applicant. He's investigating Jesus. A lot of people investigate Jesus. A lot of people learn about him who never know him. They just have facts. And so there's no commitment because it's more of a negotiation than a feeling of obligation. Commitment is putting your weight on something to the point of vulnerability. Follow me here. Uh, no, there's, if there's no vulnerability, there's no commitment. If there's no commitment, there's no relationship. And, and I'll just use the, uh, any relationship works in this way. If you want to, if you want to know somebody, if you want to have a relationship with somebody, you have to open up to a certain extent. It's like, you know, you remember your first date? Start asking each other questions. All that lying you do and all that lying. <laughs> no, just kidding. None of us would do that. But, uh, we starting to know each other. Right? You're opening up. If you want a deeper relationship, you open up more. If you want it to deepen, get deeper still, you open up more. And you make yourself vulnerable. And, but there's risk here. Because if you open yourself up to somebody, then they could hurt you. And so lots of people today never open themselves up. They never become vulnerable. And so they stay alone or they, they never get the relationships that they should have. Consider the marriage relationship. See, you don't know me. Not really. You think you know me. Some of you know me better than others. Some of you will get to know me better as we spend more time together. But you don't know me like that lady right there knows me. Okay, not to that depth. And I don't know you like your spouse knows you. Uh, the, in a marriage relationship, uh, that's what makes marriage so wonderful because you have somebody. My wife has seen the ugly, okay? She has seen me at my worst. My wife knows, she's intimately aware of my weaknesses, both of them, and she, and she still loves me. But you understand, that's a risk, isn't it? We have to take a risk to enter a relationship. We have to be vulnerable. But the more vulnerable you are, the closer your relationship. And as long as you stand on the sidelines like Simon, just evaluating Christ... Never giving yourself to him. That's what religion is, basically. It's ultimate, ultimately, it is self-based, counterfeit Christianity. Evaluating. Never really a relationship. Just dabbling. There's no real commitment to Christ. They stay, they interview Christ, they, but they stay detached. 
They keep their options open. You can't do that in life without losing in your relationships. How much more then, if you want to have the ultimate relationship with the ultimate person, there has to be ultimate commitment. Simon doesn't commit himself, but this woman does. And look to how she does it. It's really quite amazing. She brings, the Bible says, an alabaster flask of perfume. Now, I did a little reading up, and, and uh, I always like to study the culture in, this, in the time of the text that we're reading. And it was uh, in this situation, it's very probable that she, as a prostitute, would wear that around her neck. It was normal for women of her line of work to wear a flask of perfume. It was part of the alluring. It was part of what made them attractive. In a sense, it was a cosmetic. It was a tool of her trade. And so understand what she is doing when she takes her hair down. She takes this flask off. Uh, again, not supposed to do that in that time, in that day. But for her to pour this at his feet was to say, I have a better use now for this perfume than I had before. She's changing the direction of her life. I know so many people who approach Christ like, I'll add him into my life along with other things just to give me some personal peace and inspiration. That's Simon-type thinking. Just putting him in for convenience sake. But the only way to relate to Jesus is to make him master of everything, my friend. The only, you need to make him master of your job, your behavior, the way you use your money, your relationships, your thought life. Everything ought to be under the control of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no way you'll have a proper relationship with Jesus and stay in control. No way. No way at all. Look at what she's done here. Put, it, put yourself in her shoes. Because I tell you, everyone in this room myself included, we have little flasks around our neck. Every one of us. Things that we hold dear, things that are important to us. You're going to pour that out at somebody's feet. You're going to worship someone. There's someone you're going to live for or something. So this morning, friend, who gets your heart? Who do you utterly and entirely live for? If it's self it's going to be a miserable existence. If it's another person, they will fail you eventually. Uh, if it's a thing, it will pass away. The only thing that satisfies and brings fulfillment is to live for Jesus Christ. There's another contrast here between Simon and the woman, and this is important because there's an idea that <coughs> the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is morality. Though we might say, well, you know, a Christian lives a good life, a moral life, and a non-Christian lives a wicked life. No, he, not in this story. Simon was the moral one. He was the one that obeyed all the rules, racked up all the spiritual points in society. She had lived an immoral life. The difference is not which one was more moral. The difference is not which one uh, claims to know Jesus because lots of people know about him that uh, there's no real change in their life. No, the difference is she comes with everything and lays it at his feet. She relinquishes control. She puts him in control. Uh, Simon gives Jesus an audience. She gives Jesus worship. Simon gives Jesus his table. She gives Jesus her heart. Simon gives Jesus consideration. She gives Jesus commitment, everything. Simon treats Jesus just like any other guest. In fact, that's why he might have been perturbed when he said, you didn't do all these things with me. Hey, I treated you just like anybody else. Jesus isn't just anybody else. He is different. 
Because there's one of two things. Either he is who he says he is, the creator, the Messiah, the very son of God, or he is a liar, a fraud, and a completely deranged human being. One of those two is true. Neither way do you treat him like everyone else. Because of the claims that he has made, either he should be summarily rejected or he should be treated the way that this woman treats him because of who he is. When she took that flask off her neck, probably it was probably the most valuable thing she had financially. She's saying, Lord, you're not just one more thing in my life. I'm not just adding you on a list of other things. You are my everything. You're the most valuable thing in the world to me. You see, in religion, people use Jesus to get other things. Let me explain that. In Their acceptance of God rests on their experience. So they follow Jesus and, and uh, hope for a better marriage and for their kids to turn out and for uh, success and all that stuff to work out. And when it doesn't work out, they walk away from the church. They walk away from religion because it didn't give me what I wanted. That Simon type of thinking, not real Christianity. And when <clears throat> real acceptance of Christ, real Christianity says, you are everything I need and everything I want. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is, come, is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness and no shadow of turning. This woman says, I refuse to see anything as more valuable than you. I pour everything I am and everything that I have at your feet. If I have you, I have everything I need. You're not one more thing in my life. You are my life. That's the attitude that she has. Remember the hymn we sang last week. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. The difference between Christianity and religion is not that Christians are more uh, submitted or more surrendered or more committed than anyone else. That's not it at all. Look under, look beneath the symptoms. Let's look at the causes. You know, this parable is a remarkable thing because it shows the human condition. And I love parables and stories in the Bible that do that. Looking at Simon and this woman, on some level, they both believe in God. On some level, they believe they're sinners. Both of them know that they make mistakes and they do wrong things. Both of them believe they need to be forgiven, probably. But people respond differently to being forgiven. It always amazes me if I talk to a blood-bought, born-again child of God, yes, I know I'm forgiven, but they're still unhappy, still depressed, still dissatisfied with life. Other people can look at the fact that I'm forgiven, and it changes their life and it blows their mind. Uh, different responses. I wonder if some of us aren't more like Simon. See, Simon didn't understand the gospel. He didn't understand the depth of sin of his sin, and the cost of salvation. And today, if you and I truly understood this at the core of our being, if we grasped this, we'd be more like this woman than we would be like Simon. This is where impact comes in. If you can look around at people and you find it hard to love messed up people, and you look around with a being filled with a critical, holier-than-thou spirit, we feel sorry for ourselves. It's easy to find fault in others. That is because we do not understand the gospel as we should. Dr. Frankenstein said to Igor, I've invented a computer that is almost human. Igor responded, you mean it can, com it, it can contemplate and 
cogitate? He says, no, but it thinks it's better than all the other computers. That's what we are, isn't it? We do that. We think we're better. There are religious people who never understand the gospel that are living by a set of rules, but there's Christians too who really aren't living in the power of the gospel because if we really did grasp it, we'd walk away today like that woman thinking, wow, what he did for me. Jesus, in this parable of the two debtors, shows us something about our sin. He makes himself the lender, and both the man and the woman are debtors, Simon and the woman. The woman, presumably, is the 500 debtor, and Simon, let's say, is the 50 debtor. Uh, what does this mean, then? Does she need salvation more? Follow me on this. Listen, does she need salvation more than he does because she's a worse sinner She's immoral. Some of us look at it this way. We say, oh my, but those that are <clears throat> in prison or those that are on skid row or those the, the addicts or the ones at the mission, those are the people that really need to be saved. They need conversion, but the rest of us, I only need some instruction. That's how we look at life sometimes. This is not the case at all. Jesus is saying the opposite. The main point is not one is 50 and one is 500. That's not the main point he's trying to make. The point he's trying to make is neither one of them could pay the debt. It doesn't matter if you owe 5 million or 50 bucks or 10 cents for that matter. If you can't pay it, you can't pay it. That's the point he's making there. And we all have a debt. We're all spiritually dead. Consider two people. Uh, that are both murdered. That, I'm not going to, this is one time I'm not going to illustrate it, okay? But let's just imagine it. Two people are murdered. One uh, is, has a stiletto just stuck up just beneath the rib and it punctures the heart and they die. The other one has uh, had five guys with Tommy guns and he's just completely blown apart with a machine gun. Now, is one more dead than the other? No, well, you say one, they're both dead, but one is ugly dead. Does it really matter? No, they're both dead. Doesn't matter the condition. And Simon says to himself, she's a sinner. But he needed to say to himself, I'm a sinner. Jesus looks at this moral, religious, upright Simon, and he says, I want you to know you are in the same position that she's in. Doesn't matter if she owes more than you owe. Neither one of you can pay your debt. You're just as condemned. And friends, this is the antithesis of religion because none of us can gain salvation on our own. It is only through Christ's payment on the cross. When we really come to that understanding, we come to grips with that, with the fact that I do not deserve what Jesus gave me, only then can we really have an impact. That's when we can look at people the right way in need of the gospel just like me. How many times through the week do we look down on somebody because of how they dress or because of the amount of metal in their orifices or whatever it is? How many times we look down on people? This is what we learn in this supper with Jesus. Jesus shows Simon here that the difference between her 50 and 500 is not meaning that she needs salvation more. She just realizes she needs salvation more. See, Simon didn't even realize it. The two debts here represent not the amount of sin, but the awareness of the guilt. And you want to know the real reason her life was transformed and his is not? She knows what she is. She was honest with who she was. He's not. He's like the Pharisee that stood off thinking, Lord, 
thank you that I'm me. Remember that prayer? I crack up when I read that prayer. What? How arrogant did he have to be? Even arrogant people don't like arrogant people. Amen? I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him. Thank you for making me like me. He was so wonderful. This is Simon's problem. He's, he's not honest about who he is. She was, and she was forgiven. If you're here today and you don't have the peace that she got, if you don't have the joy that she had, could it be that you don't see the depths of your own sin? So that when you hear that Jesus forgave you, or maybe He hasn't yet, but His forgiveness is there for you and He's waiting for you, it doesn't change you, it doesn't transform you, it doesn't excite you. You see, we sort of think that we deserve God's forgiveness. God is so lucky to have me. <laughs> That's how many people think. Can I tell you this? If depravity were green, we'd be green all over. Cut us anywhere and we'd bleed green. Cut into our minds and you'll find green thoughts. Cut into our vision and you'll find green images full of greed and lust. Cut into our hearts and there are green emotions of hatred, revenge, and blame. Cut into our wills and you'll find green decisions and responses because if depravity is green, we'd be green through and through. We can all say with Paul when he said in Romans seven eighteen, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. No good thing at all. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. We don't like to be dependent on forgiveness. We like to think that we're good enough. And she was special because she realized the depths of her sin. She was honest with herself, where Simon was not. So when Jesus said, thy sins are forgiven, she's transformed. The same offer is open to Simon. It doesn't seem to affect him. He doesn't seem to care one way or the other. He's thinking, I know I have a few sins. And, and to, to Simon, you see, in his mind, sin is just a lack of obeying and conforming to the rules. And so to fix that, he'll just obey and conform to the rules a little more. That's religion. It'll never, ever, ever work in your life. Because you can't earn salvation. You'll never be good enough. Oh, the foolishness of thinking we can solve our sin problem. And it all comes from not realizing our depravity. It is Simon thinking. When Simon's thinking, I'm not, I'm not that bad. She is bad. And yet she went away redeemed. He did not. Consider with me the cost of salvation. How does the lender forgive? Uh, when this lender forgave this debt, there's only one way to forgive a debt, and that's to eat the cost. Uh, when you forgive a debt, the debt doesn't just go off into thin air. Someone has to uh, absorb it. Somebody has to pay for it. We're having a big national conversation right now about student loan forgiveness. And whether you're for or against that, let me say this, somebody's going to have to pay for it. It doesn't just poof into midair. No debt does that. And neither did this debt. That's what the lender did. He absorbed the cost. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And you see, if we understand the extent of our sin, then we'll be amazed and we'll be thrilled by the grace of God. And the most natural thing in the world is for us to impact other people who need that grace just like I do. 
It's no longer looking at down at people. It's no longer having disdain on the populace. It's no longer sitting in a church, us four and no more, and never stepping out and never trying to reach somebody with the gospel. Now uh, we can become excited and impassioned to reach others because we know the full cost of what he paid. We understand the debt that he absorbed, and that'll help us. You know the real difference between Simon and the woman? The Simon who was guilty of sins of the flesh. Or, I'm sorry, the woman was guilty of sins of the flesh. Simon was guilty of sins of the spirit, a critical attitude, a hard heart. The real difference was she saw it. He didn't. He was blind to his own sin. They both owed a debt, and neither one could pay it. This woman now, at the end of the chapter, has a personal relationship with God. She's changed. Simon has an intellectual relationship with God. He is unchanged. It's the difference between religion and real, godly, Bible Christianity. Which one do you have? And then for you Christians, for those of us who already know that we're <coughs> a child of God, can I talk to you about your flask that you have? Every one of us has a flask that we hold dear, the most important thing to our life. Have you laid that at Jesus' feet like this woman did? Have you given it all? We ought to be responding to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ more like the woman and a whole lot less like Simon. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. The two debtors, the two debtors, every one of us is a debtor. If you're in here today and you've never accepted the, gospel, uh, the, uh, the uh, gift of salvation that Jesus paid for you on the cross, let me encourage you today, just step out, let somebody take a Bible and show you how you can know that you know you're on your way to heaven. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, you're a child of God, but there's things you're holding on to, you haven't given them over like you should, yeah, I encourage you to do that today. She's going to begin to play as you stand along with me, heads bowed, eyes closed.